reading is from Romans chapter 10, Romans 10, verses 5 through to 10. In the uh, previous section, the uh, Apostle was talking about the, um, the Jews, uh, the Gentiles, and the apostasy of much of uh, Israel. And then in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Would you then turn please to Deuteronomy chapter 30, the passage that was quoted by the Apostle in that last reading from Romans. Deuteronomy 30, I'll read verses 11 to 20 but the text for the sermon is verses 11 to 14, and following that I'll read from the Westminster Confession. Deuteronomy 30 from verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. 
you shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give them. And then uh, also from the Westminster Confession, Article 7 in the first chapter, or you can find it in the bulletin as well. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for all our members, from the youngest child to the most mature adult, that we would all grow in the knowledge of your word and in the ability also to benefit from the preaching of it. Father, will you remove whatever hindrances of either circumstance or attitude that might stand in the way of that? And would you also grant, Lord, that we may be patient with the process of, of this growth, that it does not all happen overnight necessarily, but that uh, it is a process and uh, where we have to gradually learn and uh, grow in knowledge and grace. And we pray that you would help us to accept that and to look forward to uh, increasing growth and maturity in, in years ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, we will be considering this afternoon the doctrine that is known as the perspicuity of Scripture, uh, something that the uh, profession of faith candidates learn about. It's one of the characteristics of scripture that they they learn about in the uh, profession of faith class and are questioned about also in their um, examination by the uh, by the elders and it is in case you're not very familiar with the word perspicuity it's another word for clarity literally it's a word that means something that is able to be seen through and that's why the word uh, that's where the word perspex comes from from as well. Perspex is something you can see through because it's clear. And uh, it's another, um, perhaps another way of saying it is it's something that is uh, transparent, like uh, glass or like certain gemstones that you can hold up to the light and you can see out the other side, as opposed to something that is opaque that you cannot see through. 
The Westminster Confession in the, this uh, seventh article, talking about the things of Scripture, defines it in this way, that those matters in Scripture are so clearly propounded, or we might say taught, and opened, or we could say explained, that not only the educated but also the uneducated may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. And uh, that is a teaching that is found not only in the Westminster Confession, but uh, as we found with the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, it was clearly and strongly taught by the continental reformers as well. Now, you will most likely have had the experience at some time or another, if you are diligent in reading the Bible at least, that you read a passage or a part of one and uh, you come away from that or perhaps sometimes you hear a sermon, it could be the same kind of issue, and uh, you come away afterwards and you say, it's all Greek to me, you don't have a clue what it's about. Uh, Books like Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation or at least parts of them, certain aspects of them, are notoriously hard to interpret. Even though we may understand every word that's used, uh, we nevertheless struggle with the interpretation. And this is an issue that we need to bring into the picture and factor in when we're discussing the perspicuity of Scripture. And indeed, it is brought in both in the Westminster and by the Continental Reformers. And we'll attempt to, uh, to do that, to factor that in as we consider the text under three headings. First of all, near to hear. Secondly, near to observe. And thirdly, not too difficult. Near to hear, near to observe, and not too difficult. In the first place then, I, I've taken this first point, near to hear, from the fact that the text emphasises hearing verses 12 and 13, where Israel is depicted as crying out, make us hear it, that we may observe it. And that uh, reference to that cry for the ability to hear is mentioned twice in those two verses. But the subject really comes up also implicitly in the the, the other verse, in verse 14. The thing that is to be heard is... This commandment, as Moses puts it, which refers to the, the whole sermon, uh, the whole book of Deuteronomy and no doubt beyond that, uh, we could put it this way, it refers to the whole word of covenant renewal because this was what Moses was putting before the people of Israel on that day. When they were on the plains of Moab waiting to cross over into the promised land, And if they were going to enjoy that promised land uh, with God's uh, help and blessing, they needed to heed the covenant word. And so Moses was laying out for them that covenant word and in quite some detail. But then the Apostle Paul's citation of this, this same passage in Romans 10 verse 8, shows that the same principle applies not only to what Moses was putting before the people of Israel in that day, but the same principle applies to the gospel as that's expressed also in the New Testament. In fact, to the entire word of faith that was preached by the apostles. Saying that this word is near to them, near to here, means that it is not so high and lofty 
it is not uh, so uh, inaccessible to sinners on earth that uh, it, is, uh, it, that it can, cannot reach them. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it? In other words, the word of God, his self-revelation, is not stored secretly in some place in heaven uh, in order to preserve God's uh, unapproachability, uh, but it is something that is given to us on earth. Nor is it so lofty that you would have to be um, an extremely well-qualified academic or a specialist in the scripture or perhaps an unusually godly person or perhaps even an angel in order to understand it and to be able to explain it to others. Likewise, it is not far away, across the sea, in some far distant land that you'd have to travel to on some great pilgrimage, uh, making all sorts of unusual sacrifices that few people would be able to make in order to discover the truth. Some of the world's false religions have that idea of a mystical journey to discover the truth, to gain enlightenment, to find that enlightenment that few people can manage. And uh, you may have seen something about this on uh, TV a few years ago or read about it somewhere, but um, uh, some uh, Buddhist monks, uh, in fact this is not an unusual thing, uh, Buddhist monks who travel huge distances across their, their nation, the one I was reading about recently, from uh, China to Tibet, uh, a pilgrimage that was made crawling, on their bellies crawling, in order to find more enlightenment as they made their way to Lhasa in Tibet. Uh, quite a, a grueling way of getting there, I suspect. Um, so we're not, we, you don't need to do things like that in order to find the truth. And you don't need to go to some far distant pa- place in order to find the truth nor do you need to perform some kind of secret rites that will initiate only a select few into the mysteries. That's uh, the nature of Freemasonry, for example, or Gnosticism in ancient times, where only a few could get this secret knowledge because it was so distant from the ordinary person, it was so distant that something special had to be done by man in order to find that enlightenment. No, God himself has revealed the truth to sinners on earth where we are. He has inspired prophets and apostles to deliver it. He has caused it to be gathered together into one book in written form in that process of inscripturation. And of course, at the right time, he sent his son who is the truth, who is the word, the word made flesh, and who fulfills the word and is the fullness of it. In certain time, at a certain time in the lifetime of the elect, God also organizes us, he organizes our lives in his providence so that we hear that word where we are, or we read it. And he enables us by grace to understand it by the work of his spirit. He illuminates us, so that we can understand it also by first uniting us to the Lord Jesus Christ through regeneration, being born again. And therefore verse 4 says, this is why it can say, 
the word is very near you, in your mouth, sorry, verse 14, uh, very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, which is extremely close. Even in Moses' time, this could be said. Through what God was doing by speaking through prophets and the work of his spirit already in the Old Testament, enabling believers to uh, understand what was in what they had of the scripture, even then Moses could write, it's not so far away, it is in your mouth and in your heart. It's very near, you couldn't get any nearer. And if that was true as it was already in Moses' time in the Old Testament, then how much more deeply is that truth now applied through the Lord Jesus Christ, the word who has come and finished his work and poured out the spirit of illumination upon his people. Emphasis on the word being near to observe is also very important for understanding this uh, doctrine of perspicuity. We find this in verses 12, 13 and 14 as well, that the word is near to observe. Our second point. And this, this language, that the word is near to observe, tells us something about the purposes or designs of the Lord. And his purposes, as you may realise, flow from his character. I want to pick out just uh, three attributes of God that illustrate this, three or four. Uh, first of all, the fact that God is infinitely glorious. So this is to do with his character. He's infinitely glorious. And he also intends to be glorified by men because that is what the glory of God deserves. That is what the glory of God warrants, that men will recognize it and give glory to and honor to him. But for that to happen, we need to know about that glory. And we need to know how to give glory to him. Another attribute or two, God is loving and gracious. He has planned to rescue sinners through the work of his son. But there again, we need to know what that means. We need to know and hear about the Lord Jesus Christ about the way of salvation. We need to hear the gospel. And then a third attribute, God is infinitely holy and therefore he desires to be served in a holy way by those who are being transformed into the likeness of his son. Again, we need to know what that means. We need to know how. We need to know how to live, how to serve and how to obey God in a holy way. For all of that, for that character of God to accomplish uh, what it is worthy of, what his character is worthy of, for all of that, we need to know the truth and we need to have it set before us clearly. Otherwise, how are we going to respond to these things? Thus, God's character determines the purpose of his word. His word is designed for life and for living on the part of his people. The point of this whole exhortation that Moses makes here is that Israel may choose life rather than death, that they may choose to walk in God's ways, in his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, 
as verses 15 to 20 go on to say. What Moses is giving here is for the purpose of covenant renewal, which is a matter of life and living. And Scripture makes this objective of itself, it's the, the purpose or objective of Scripture, it makes this clear in so many ways. So often the Bible says of itself, especially in the Psalms, that God's word is a lamp. And what is the purpose of a lamp? It is to give you light so that you, so that you can learn where to walk and how to walk without stumbling. And we find that, for example, in Psalm 119, verse 105, in Proverbs 6, verse 23, and in 2 Peter 1, verse 12, that God's word is a lamp. We find also that the purpose of Scripture is to enlighten the eyes and make wise the simple. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. But the point that I'm making here is that both the purpose of God and what follows from that the, per, uh, the character of God and what follows from that, the purpose of his word, these things require perspicuity. They require clarity in his word so that we can live, so that we can receive that life and then live according to it exactly as these verses say. If, scripture, if the lamp is not clear, how is it going to guide us? If the scripture is not clear, how are the simple going to become wise, and so forth. So these truths about God and his, the purpose of his word, they require perspicu- perspicuity as well as a new nature and the illuminating work of God's spirit. And if we don't have those three things in place, it's like uh, giving a, a blind man, man a road map and saying to him, here you go, Here's your map, I should say an illegible road map, maybe uh, some food is being spilt on it or uh, water has got onto it and the map is illegible. You give a blind man an illegible map and then you tell him, here's your map, go away, look at it and then you can meet me at a certain place. No, the man needs first to be healed, he needs his eyes to be made to see and then secondly, having had that healing, he also needs a map that he can actually read. It needs to be clear. And if neither of those things are in place, if they're not both in place, then he's not going to arrive where he needs to be. The reformers then often argued in this way. They argued for the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture on precisely this basis that it flows out of God's own character and his stated purpose for his own word, as well as from the verses that I just mentioned. And... uh, In terms of those verses, it is particularly that uh, argument about the word being a lamp and about the wise being made simple. Those are uh, two sets of verses that the Reformers quote frequently in order to prove the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, Moses, under inspiration, may have emphasised the law, but of course, and I alluded to this uh, a few minutes ago, choosing life is... Uh, a much, much greater matter than just following God's law. And we see that in the verses ahead of our text as well, where Moses sets before Israel not only the commandments and the statutes and the judgments of God, but he also sets before them the blessings. 
verse 19, for example. And those blessings are just as important, they are just as crucial for covenant renewal as the law of God, his commandments. Those blessings are a matter of the Lord's promises. And all of those promises are ultimately grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. As for that matter, so is our ability to walk acceptably acceptably before the Lord. That's also grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we could say then that our whole life, both with respect to law and gospel and our response to both, our whole life is completely tied up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore the formulation of the doctrine of perspicuity is that it applies to all that is necessary to be known, doctrine in other words, believed, and observed, doctrine and life, for salvation. That's stated in Article 7. To put it another way, we need to know about the Lord Jesus and the Gospel. And we also need to know how to live to demonstrate that we are thankful to him. In order to attain to a sufficient understanding of these things, Article 7, in other words, sufficient for salvation. Most of us here will probably not ever become seminary professors. But the Bible is sufficiently clear for your salvation. That is the point that is being made. And this was set over against the historical teaching of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism taught that the scripture is sufficient to show you that you need the Bible plus. You need the Bible plus the teachings of the church and its traditions. Which is really another way of saying that the Bible is sufficient to show you that the Bible is insufficient in itself. They were not prepared to say that the scripture is sufficient in and of itself. And you see, the reformers in no way opposed the ministry of the church to help God's people understand the Bible. On the contrary, and they spoke in the local languages so that people could actually understand that, instead of Latin, which they couldn't understand most of them. The reformers certainly emphasized that ministry of the church but they insisted on upholding the sufficiency and the clarity of the Word of God in itself. And they refused to allow themselves or to allow that the Word was either so insufficient or so unclear that it needed help, that it needed to be clarified and added to by the church and uh, by the traditions of the church, that it needed to be complemented as if the Bible itself needed help. And as I say, they argued that primarily from the nature of God and also from his stated purposes for his own word uh, to show that God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of clarity and therefore he has made his Bible sufficient and clear. The word itself is complete both in its content and its clarity, and that is the reason why the church has a ministry, a ministry that is based and founded on the Word, 
rather than the church trying to do something that, as if the Bible uh, can't look after itself, as if the Bible can't provide these things and the church needs to provide what isn't in the Bible. You see, it's not the Bible that needs help, it's us. And the church couldn't help us if it didn't base its ministry on a scripture that has no lack, either in content or in explanation. Well, that still leaves us with the question, uh, what about the parts we find too difficult, uh, parts of Revelation and so forth? Does that, after all, imply that there is some deficiency which the church must remedy? Our third and final point, not too difficult, which comes, of course, from verse 11, in which that is plainly stated that this word, this commandment, as Moses puts it, is not too difficult or out of reach. And here, too, the reformers made some very important distinctions as the Westminster does in Article 7, where it says, and I'll I'll quote here from the uh, MESV, which is a a modernised but still accurate uh, translation of the Westminster, the older language of the Westminster, and uh, I'll quote from that here because it's very easy to follow. Uh, Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all. That's one of these qualifications. Another way of saying that is to acknowledge that there is mystery in the Word of God. Uh, Take the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of predestination. We know the words and roughly what they mean. We also know the fact of these truths, that God is triune and that he predestines. But on the other hand, we don't know how uh, all the detail of of how that works. We don't know how all the pieces of these truths fit together or have all the answers to all the questions that men might raise about them. Actually, there is mystery under every truth, single truth in the Bible. It's just that with things like the Trinity and predestination, we're confronted with it more obviously and out of our depth more obviously with those truths. Then there are also those passages that are difficult to exegete. Exegete means to uh, tease out the meaning of the scripture. Uh, Some passages are difficult to exegete, such as uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, as I mentioned. The Apostle Peter writes of the Apostle Paul that uh, with the wisdom given him, so this is actually what he received from God, what was given to him, he is hard to understand, says Peter. Even another apostle acknowledged that, 2 Peter 3.16. And on top of that, we as God's people, we have different abilities, different gifts when it comes to studying the Bible. And we have different degrees of diligence or, unfortunately, sometimes laziness. And uh, we also uh, find ourselves at different stages of maturity in our lives. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we don't always follow every passage in the Bible. I certainly don't. There are passages I read them and I say, uh, I don't really understand why that's put that way. I'll have to go and do some work on it. And uh, not not that I always follow through with that either, I must say. But uh, we all no doubt have had that experience. 
uh, that we read a passage and we just don't get it. But the assurance here is that, that nevertheless the scripture in itself is clear. That is to say, all the things we need to know, believe and observe for salvation will be taught in some place in the scripture. That's another qualification. It will be taught somewhere in the scripture in such a way that even the uneducated may understand. So we have this important combination in scripture. This mixture of mystery and clarity both at the same time. We have things that are less clear and we have things that are more clear. Or, and I I really like the uh, way that the Swiss reformer Francois Turretin uh, expresses this and um, you'll see that in the title of the sermon, my appreciation for this little explanation. He says, the scripture is a mixture of bread and butter and hidden gems. I thought there's a nice way of bringing those two aspects together, bread and butter and hidden gems. For the difficulty, and the reason for this, Tariton also suggests the reason for this. And there are a number of reasons why God has made his word like that, that mixture. He points out that the, uh, the difficulty of some parts actually excites us to study so that you read it and hopefully at times at least uh, you say what I at times say to myself, oh, I don't quite understand what's being said there, I need to do more work on it. It excites us to study, or it ought to, when we find something we don't understand. That's part of the purpose of having difficult parts. And another reason for those difficult parts is that it keeps us humble, that we say, look, I don't understand everything in the Scripture. God is infinitely greater and wiser than I am, so why should I be surprised? And that's good for us to have that that understanding and experience. If all the Bible were dead easy, then we might start to wonder if it were simply a book written by simple men rather than the God who is infinite in wisdom. At the same time as we have those parts, we also have the easier parts that keep us from giving up in frustration, which would surely happen if we, every time we opened up the Bible we said, it's all Greek to me. The deep and the, the great and most uh, profoundest parts that are beyond our comprehension remind us that this is from the infinite and living God. But if it were all too difficult, how would we learn and grow? The more difficult parts also remind us of the importance of using the means that God has provided to increase our understanding of his word. The scriptures are perspicuous, but we will not discover that clarity if we give ourselves over to laziness. The scripture is clear, but again, we gain understanding in a due use of ordinary means. That means uh, not looking for something extraordinary, some uh, mystical or uh, miraculous event that somehow opens our eyes, but in the ordinary use of means that God has given to us in church life. And um, the, the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture uh, in no way 
denies that, the need for ordinary means. Uh, Studying Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. That ordinary process, nevertheless with God's help, but that ordinary process that we do in order to gain a better understanding. Prayer, where we ask for that better understanding. That's part of the means. Uh, Using uh, exegetical tools like commentaries, that again can increase our understanding. Talking with fellow Christians and, of course, being exposed regularly to the ministry of the church, to Bible studies, to sermons, of course, especially that, where we grow in our understanding. However, the difficult parts also remind us, and this is a most important point, perhaps even more important, of our need for the Lord's help that we need his help with the difficult parts actually reminds us that we need his help with the whole lot, even to gain a true understanding of the simpler parts of Scripture. We need God's help. And perspicuity does not deny or undermine that either. Rather, it encourages us to seek for that help. We, After all, we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelievers can't understand God's word because they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not given the ability or the help to understand God's word. They need regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit, in addition to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believers too, we need the ongoing illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit in order to have a true understanding, not just something academic or abstract, but a true understanding of God's word that comes with a desire to apply it to our lives as well for the glory of God, not for some other reason. This teaching, therefore, is not some airy-fairy theoretical truth aimed simply at refuting historical Roman Catholicism. Israel needed to hear it to encourage them in covenant renewal, and so do we. Because covenant renewal comes through the study and exposure to God's word with the help of his spirit. Israel needed it to be encouraged to seek the Lord's help in that process with humility and so do we. And therefore no matter what your ability, no matter how gifted you are with exegesis and the knowledge of doctrine and so on, keep on seeking the Lord's help to grow in the knowledge of his word. At the same time as you put effort into it, to the study of God's word, to meditation upon it, wrestling with it, comparing scripture with scripture, in order that you may observe it more and more. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We pray that you would enable us to be uh, on the watch in our own lives, uh, on the watch for laziness with respect to your word, because as we know, we live in a time where uh, many look for an easy way out, and we pray, Father, that you would help us not to be like that. We pray that you would humble us by your word and that you would move us in that humility to seek your help to study to understand and to observe your word and also likewise with the preaching of it. Father, would you move us to work at the parts we don't understand 
but also to accept our limitations. And Father, we also praise you for both the profound and unfathomable depths of your word and also the clarity that there is in it when we need it so that we have what we need for salvation. We thank you for this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we sang uh, not that long ago, a few weeks ago, from uh, Psalm 19 with respect to other aspects of the doctrine of Scripture, but also in these uh, verses, in Psalm 19, in these verses, there's also uh, uh, some uh, reference to this teaching of uh, perspicuity uh, indirectly, but it is there in these stanzas as we sing from the Red Book, uh, number 19, stanzas 1, 4 and 5. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. Number 19, stanzas 1, 4, and 5. After the blessing is our doxology, again from the Red Book, number 145, stanzas 1 and 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 